Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. This is episode 10 of our Albion, Florida series and episode 152 of the Florida History Podcast. Last week, we talked about the origins of the American Revolution in Florida. And let's uh, let's get a little deeper into it, the, the reasons why Florida stayed loyal to the crown. As I said, one of the overriding factors was the role of Catholicism in staying Florida, in keeping Florida loyal to the crown. And uh, let me actually preface all of these discussions by saying this is the view of some historians, some of the things I'm reflecting. It's also largely my view. I'm not a historian, but some of my historical analysis, much of my historical analysis is formed by other writings and other thinkers. However, in this arena, I've made some theories of my own, and I've I've created my own sort of understanding of why Florida played the role it did in in, in the American Revolution based on everything else we know. So a a lot of this, a lot of the discussion of the American Revolution are my own theories. We'll just uh, put it at that. Although... In terms of the, the specifically the Catholic issue, that has been written about by other historians and has been talked about. But things like we're going to talk about the growth of the North Carolina backcountry and the Whig takeover of Georgia. Those things are really things that I have looked at and have applied them to to Florida, uh, since those are nearby states, nearby colonies at the time, and, and seen how they affected Florida. So let's get right into the role of Catholicism, which is something which is more broadly agreed upon than just by me. It's, it's more than my historical theory. By 1775, the British had spent the previous decade trying to reconcile with Catholics in, in Ireland and other parts of the British Empire. Uh, Catholics were not emancipated at this time in the British Empire. It still was not legal to, uh, to uh, practice Roman Catholicism in, on the island of Great Britain. It had been banned uh, previously, and, and we've talked... Uh, previously on this podcast and in this series about the hostility of the British to Catholicism from about the time of uh, certainly obviously Henry VIII is the, is the king that broke with the uh, w- with the church, with the Pope, but um, the hostility to the papacy from the time of Elizabeth I onward. So from about the 1560s, 1570s, hatred and disdain of Catholicism really fueled a lot of the British Empire's ambitions. So, as I said, 1775, uh, there, there, there's moves afoot to kind of reconcile with Catholics, and this is under the, the leadership of King George III. This had come more than two centuries after uh, Henry VIII, uh, and uh, the obviously the intensification that came with the be- uh, execution of Charles I in 1649, a king thought to have Catholic sympathies. Uh, you can argue about uh, Charles I. There's there's a practical side that says that when the parliamentarians and Oliver Cromwell had gained an upper hand on the island of Great Britain militarily, that Charles I's only play left was to 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 engender the sympathy of Irish Catholics who were his his subjects. So. He, he, he positioned himself there. So that, that we can debate. We're not, having, we're not talking about Oliver Cromwell and the, and, and the uh, English Civil Wars here. And then obviously James II had uh, 
pretty deep Catholic sympathies. And once uh, the Glorious Revolution takes place, England is very proudly Protestant, very proudly Anglican, obviously had been proudly Anglican since the 1500s, but really now at this point has a disdain of Catholics as an official policy once again. Maryland had had significant uh, pockets of Catholics, but by 1775 had become majority Protestant. So let's look at the 13 colonies. Maryland is the one colony, even in its name, right? Maryland. You you think of as having some sort of Catholic uh, foundation, some, some Catholic ties in its foundation. But by 1775, it had become like the other 12 colonies in the so-called 13 colonies, majority Protestant. New York particularly New York City, was Anglican, very Anglican-influenced, which is also why New York was loyaler to the crown, and there was a persistence of loyalists in New York City, and George Washington and the Continental Army could never regain control of that city once they they fled to New Jersey in in 1776. Of course, that's where the George Washington Bridge is uh, now, Fort Washington to Fort Lee was the uh, path that George Washington fled. New York's religious ties to the mother country made it a lot less fertile for rebellion, in in addition to mercantile and economic issues. So the controversial Quebec Act of 1774 was likely the final straw that drew uh, the revolution, started the revolution, and pushed the colonists towards independence. This is really important because this has a lot to do with religion. While much has been made about the discussion of May and June 1776, it's becoming more obvious with time and more study and more writing that the irreconcilable differences between the 13 colonies and the crown meant by 1774, a union was no longer salvageable. That's just the the reality. Contemporaries, people at the time, it takes you longer to recognize and I think we can say this about historical events in the 21st century. It sometimes takes you longer to recognize in the moment what is inevitable and what was inevitably going to happen. So I think now there's a lot of historians who believe by 1774 it was done. Independence was a foregone conclusion. However, what kind of form of government this new nation would take, this independent nation would take, or whether they would split into 13 different colonies um, was, uh, what, 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 what was up for debate. But many colonists had interpreted the Quebec Act as uh, a real problem for them, this Quebec Act of 1774. Two major reasons. One, the often repeated refrain that expansion from the colonies was halted into the Northwest, which is now the Midwest, right? The North, uh, by a combination of British actions between 1763 and 1774. That goes back to the proclamation line of 1763 and those lands being set aside for native populations. Uh, Then the view was that the Quebec Act established Catholicism as the de facto religion in the Northwest. So basically, those areas were attached to what became the Northwest Territory in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. These states came, Illinois came out of that eventually in the U.S. That area was connected to Quebec by the British in 1774. Resentment of so-called papists, right, uh, uh, Roman Catholics, being sanctioned by the crown and being promoted was a constant underlying theme of the 1770s within the 13 colonies and the promotion of Catholicism and the inevitability that the crown under George III was reconciling with Catholics. In fact, it is forgotten today by the leaders and majority of participants 
uh, in the Irish Rebellion of 1798, most of them were in fact Protestants, not Catholics. We think of the Irish Republican movement as a holy Catholic movement, which it was. 1916, uh, and then the the independence for the partition of Ireland, 1922, holy Catholic, right? Going back to the late 1800s. But in 1798, Wolf Tone and some of the other leaders of the Irish Rebellion and the United Irishmen were Protestants, in fact. There was an alliance between the French revolutionaries that disdained the Catholic Church and disdained Catholicism and the state, uh, effectively, Catholicism was a state religion in the French monarchy prior to 1789, prior to to 1791, the abolition of the monarchy. Uh, So there was a... uh, um, there was an alliance because even though the French were Catholics, the French revolutionaries, the Irish Protestants, uh, ha- they had the same enemy, right, in the Catholic Church, and and, and, and more importantly, they had the same enemy in the British Empire. Uh, full uh, opposite, uh, full scale Catholic opposition to British rule in Ireland among Catholics would not pop back up in mass until the the Great Famine of the eighteen forties, the, the so called Potato Famine. And the rest of the century, opposition to British rule in Ireland was non-denominational, then became more Catholic in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And as many of you know, there were more, because of that that famine, among other things, there are actually more people of Irish descent in the United States today than there are Irishmen in Ireland, Irishmen and Irish women in, in the Republic of Ireland. So at this point, George III is ruling over an ever-expanding empire, one that was becoming increasingly diverse. Anglicanism remained the state religion in Britain, but tolerance of other denominations was increasing. Catholics had not yet been emancipated. They were not eligible to cast a ballot for members of parliament, etc. You couldn't sit in parliament if you were Catholic at this point. But that's going to change in a couple decades. So... Britain is getting more tolerant. We know they outlaw slavery long before the United States does also. So when the American rebels invaded Quebec in 1775, they were met with fierce opposition. The merchant class in Montreal and Quebec City uh, may have favored the American patriots, but the vast majority of the population did not. They felt more secure with the British. They thought that the American patriots were these fanatical, anti-Catholic, religious zealots, really. Uh, Maybe that's unfair. Maybe the reputation of Puritanism in New England contributed to that, but that was the way they were, the hostility they faced when they invaded Quebec, which, by the way, happens again in 1812 when they invade Ontario and invade Quebec in the War of 1812. So it it repeats itself further in American history, although that doesn't concern us right now. There were some French-Canadian peasants eager to be uh, liberated from British rule, but far more peasants and regular, ordinary folk in Quebec weren't. They weren't anxious to see this, this army of, of rebel, rebel, rebel rabble, as the British would call them. And as we mentioned last week, Florida in 1775 contained the only community of Greek Orthodox residents in British North America, in New Smyrna. They eventually moved to St. Augustine. The views of this community toward the rebellion are largely unknown, although we can assume they felt much like the Catholics and the Anglicans in East Florida. So this is, uh, um, this is part of the British thinking. And 
they're also into divide and conquer. So when we talk about the Catholic thing, let's not uh, give the British too much credit for being overly tolerant and now having this epiphany of Enlightenment ideas and, oh, you know, Roman Catholics aren't that bad. The British crown, British imperial policy was very much built around the idea of dividing and conquering populations. So uh, the imperial policy, which they applied to North America, worked, right, of dividing and conquering people by religion, by race, by background, all of this stuff. So then they tried it in in, uh, in India during the uh, conquest of Bengal, which lasted from 1757 to 1765, part of the Seven Years' War, the uh, the the... the uh, the French and Indian War, right? Same, same, same time frame. Battle of uh, Plassey uh, in English, Palashi in in Bengali. We've talked about previously as a very, very uh, significant event in the history of the Indian subcontinent. But so at this point, uh, the the British are seeking to divide their colonies by religion, ethnicity, race, or any other means. So British officials and uh, colonial officials and British officials back in uh, the mother country, who at one time were viciously and violently anti-Catholic and violently racist, suddenly became agnostic when it came to these issues. Uh, And during the revolutionary period, these same people who had been violently racist, violently anti-Catholic, violent bigots a decade earlier, suddenly are thinking, oh, you know what? The Catholics, the the African-Americans and the Native Americans, they're not so bad. They can be they can be aligned with us. They're not as bad as the rebel. In fact, I've I've read many uh, accounts of British colonial officials saying, you know, the Native Americans, they um, they, they, they may not be, uh, quote, cultured or civilized by our standards, European standards, but they are more cultured and civilized than these uh, than these uh, fanatical colonists. And, and we'll 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 take the natives over the uh, the, the Puritans of Massachusetts. So uh, by that time, uh, the British had become very, very resentful of the colonists in North America and uh, saw them as in many cases as subhuman beings and, and even with their own racism in mind, said, okay, we, we, don't, uh, we, we think the Native Americans are inferior, but they're less inferior than the colonists, than these people who couldn't make it in Britain. And, uh, and you know, all sorts of motives were attributed to them, these religious fanatics and uh, these, these criminals that went to Georgia and that sort of thing. So a lot of, lot of bias. So this all speaks to the lack of ideology within the British ranks, because empire and commercial considerations were always at the forefront of everything the British did, which is kind of different than the way the French pursued their empire and kind of different than the way the Spanish and the Portuguese pursued their empire. The British and the Dutch in their empire building are very much based on commerce and mercantilism. Remember, those are two Protestant countries also. Whereas the French, the Spanish, and the Portuguese, which are Catholic countries, are much more into religious conversion and cultural conversion you could argue less exploitive but i i don't think so i think the french in particular were really exploitive resource wise of their colonies and the portuguese were just brutal right the portuguese colonial empire lasted longer than any of these colonial empires they didn't leave their uh, two most prominent african colonies Angola and Mozambique, they didn't leave them till the 1970s. So the Portuguese were, were brutal. But yeah, I, I know that there's a, a, a narrative, a school of thought 
both here in the United States and in uh, India, where my family is originally originally from, that the British were worse than other colonial powers. I, I don't buy that. I think that their, their set of considerations were different, but that they um, they were as bad in some in, in different ways. They were the, the, they were no worse than the French, but they were different than the French. If that makes sense, they were no worse than the Spanish, but they were different than the Spanish. Although. Obviously, we spent some much of this podcast series praising the Spanish rule of Florida at times, but uh, you can see what the Spanish did in, in Latin America and scratch your head and say, yeah, maybe, maybe for some of those places, the Spanish were no better than the British. So the role of trade and mercantilism really plays a big part in this. So the United Colonies, which is what we would call um, – those 13 colonies made economic warfare an essential part of its arsenal. Since East and West Florida were almost entirely at this point dependent on uh, subsidies from Great Britain and trade with the West Indies, this economic war would disproportionately target and hurt Florida. The boycott of British goods and the lack of capital flowing from the colonies that were rebelling to the crown in turn had a negative impact on Florida. Even the dumping of tea at the Boston Tea Party and then the tea uh, ship that came, went to Philadelphia right after and wasn't allowed to dock in Chester. Uh, all, all of that had a, had a really negative effect on Florida. So Florida was both part of the Caribbean and North America in British eyes. This led to a strategy which made Florida a beachhead to protect British possessions in both North America and the Caribbean. It is often forgotten, and I keep stressing this in this podcast series, in this era of history, Britain's West Indian possessions were more critical for the crown than North America was. So real two more quick factors uh, before we end this show. Uh, the lack of experience with democracy, I kind of explained it briefly in the last episode. We'll explain it again. Uh, now, uh, most of Florida's population was new to the region and had no historic ties to democratic institutions. While democratic institutions had flourished in British North America, they were largely absent in New Spain. Unlike the 13 colonies of the North, Florida had never had never any kind of real town halls or local councils that uh, guide so much of, of the democracy and empowerment in those colonies. The most migrant, uh, most recent migrants to Florida had come from places like Menorca or the Ottoman Empire, where democracy just didn't exist. The growth of the North Carolina backcountry. The Indian Department of John Stewart in 1755 prepared a detailed report about Native American groups such as the Cherokee and Creeks. While the proclamation of 1763 angered colonial populations because it protected the Native American lands from the Appalachians westward, the areas just east of the proclamation line were filled up with new settlers from 1760 to 1775. Uh, and these areas are largely in North Carolina. Many of these new settlers were the rough-hewn militia types. Uh, they were patriots and the antithesis of the type of colonists residing in Florida, and colonial officials in Florida were petrified of them. And a lot of the colonists in Florida were petrified of them. So that's a big uh, big factor. John Stewart, I mentioned, uh, remember his name in the future. We talked about the Whig uh, takeover of Georgia. So the Whigs take over Georgia in, 19, in 1775. The Loyalists, many of them flee to St. Augustine, and that began swelling the population of the town. Uh, there were uh, several prominent Loyalists that fled to Florida. So 
this then gives Florida a new leadership structure as loyalists are fleeing from Georgia into Florida, and you've got more leaders in Florida. The final point I'll make is the uh, freedom for African Americans. Florida's history is a haven for runaway slaves. We talked about this entire series, and we assumed it ended in 1763. That's it. All the freed African Americans, they get on a ship with uh, Francisco Menendez and, and others, and, and they go to Havana, never to see Florida again. Florida now is going to be like any other southern colony in British North America. It's not going to be much different than South Carolina or Virginia. Well, as it turns out, it does end up being different because while the acquisition of Florida by the British Crown temporarily relieved the pressure on the Carolinas and Georgia in terms of runaway slaves, the American Revolution meant all bets were off. And once those colonies are in rebellion, the British are even more uh, over in their encouragement of slaves to run away than the Spanish had been in the very same places. They're sending agents into Virginia and into South Carolina. They're they're telling African-American slaves, if, particularly if their uh, their masters were rebels, were, were, were quote, patriots. Uh, Here's a gun. <laughs> you know, come come fight with us or make your way to Florida. We'll organize you there. So British authorities, much like their Spanish predecessors, were now actively encouraging runaway slaves to seek refuge. The option for runaways was to defect behind British lines or head south to East Florida. Lord Dunmore, the governor of Virginia, offered freedom to runaway slaves whose masters were patriots. Any of them were given freedom. Many defected behind the British lines in the south, as, as mentioned, but others continued onward to East Florida and would be organized and armed, which is uh, somewhat terrifying for the Patriots. So anyway, this is the um, this, this is the origins of the American Revolution here in Florida. And next week, we're going to pick up with the actual war itself. So thank you once again for listening. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs>